My name is Kathy Hanoon, and I beat the often path by becoming comfortable not knowing what I'm doing. Welcome back to the Beat the Oven Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. Joining me today is Kathy Hanoon, the co-founder and president of Dandelion Energy, offering affordable home geothermal energy solutions. I don't know about you, but I spend so much money heating and cooling my home. And in a time of uncertainty surrounding natural gas and oil availability, getting off of fossil fuels seems more important than ever. Kathy left her job working at Alphabet's prestigious X-Lab to start her new venture, and they've raised over $130 million to date for the project. By home switching to residential geothermal, which is heating and cooling your home using the earth below, they can reduce their CO2 output by as much as 80% while cutting the energy costs in half. So it's a huge win-win. Kathy has been named to MIT Technology Review's 35 Under 35. She's a TED Fellow, and she's the recipient of the C3E Award from the U.S. Department of Energy. So in short, it is an absolute honor to have Kathy Hanoon with us today. Well, speaking of not knowing what we're doing, have you ever felt completely outclassed when you're in a situation? Do you ever know what that feels like? Uh, yes, all the time. <laughs> Because yes. that's that's how I feel looking at your resume. <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> what am I doing here? I'm completely out of my depth. Um, you have done some pretty impressive things in your life, not just with this most recent project, but before that. So you were uh, a rapid evaluator for Alphabet's <laughs> X Lab, or what? What was that role that you were in? And what is a rapid evaluator? That role is, um, or at least was at the time I was at X, um, that role was on the team that comes up with new businesses for X to start. So X always needs to keep a pipeline of projects, things that they're hoping will grow into the next self-driving car, for example. And that rapid evaluation team was the search party to try to find those things. And it is a great example of a time I felt out of my depths because um, I can tell the story of how I got that job, but I was definitely an unusual member of that team. I was the only member without a PhD. I was the only member in my 20s. I was probably the youngest by at least a decade. And I was the only woman and just like really felt very grateful to have that job, but it ended up being an amazing opportunity and like really launched me into what I'm doing today. So rapid evaluator for those who don't know, Alphabet is the parent company of Google. So basically as big as it gets, if you want to talk about evil umbrella corporation style, mega conglomerate, that's Alphabet. Uh, they pretty much own much of the world. So it's no small feat to be a part of that team. I'd like to think that there was somebody who came in with a ruler or like a whip of some kind and was just, whoosh, you're not evaluating rapidly enough. Was there a limit to, was there a quota to how much you needed to evaluate and how rapidly? You know, we really weren't timed on the time, our speed of evaluation. Um, <laughs> but, you know. Uh, What's the point? Yeah, it's true, though. That we were encouraged. You know, we were really encouraged um, to understand as rigorously as we could why an idea was likely not to work as, as quickly as possible. So the bias was like our all around opportunity cost, which makes sense from the perspective of an alphabet, right? Because alphabet has 
so many opportunities, right? It could do almost anything. So the question is like, well, what's, <laughs> right. what's the best thing to do? So do you think that that experience prepared you for becoming a startup founder? I mean, obviously you'd say so. Yeah. I mean, parts of it did. I, I would say like working at an alphabet is maybe the opposite of working at a startup. And so in some ways I was completely unprepared by that, um, by that experience. But the, the things that I took from it, I mean, certainly just like learning about frameworks for evaluating ideas, hopefully rapidly though, untimed, um, and becoming more comfortable just getting to know a new technology or a new problem space fairly quickly, understanding the pitfalls, right? Like I had a first row seat to why some of those ideas didn't end up working, um, which was good training. So I think all of those things are very helpful. And it just put me in the mindset of somebody who could evaluate new business opportunities, right? Which is not something, not a mindset I'd had to occupy before. So I think that in and of itself was very helpful. That makes perfect sense. And of course, without violating any NDAs or confidentiality agreements, <laughs> <coughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, was it the case where you just had 50 ideas and one of them was actually good and superior said, hey, what do you think of that idea? And you knew that it was the best idea. And so you just sort of held it aside. Oh, no, no, that won't work. Geothermal energy. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> by the way, I quit. And by the way, I'm starting my on a completely unrelated note. I'm starting my own company in this space. Just Is that how it went? would have been super sneaky of me. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing that is so hard about rapid evaluation is it's just hard to tell what's a good idea and what's a bad idea um, from the perspective of an armchair expert, which is like essentially what we were uh, trying to figure this out from yeah. Mountain View, California. And so I had a few ideas that I was evaluating, I guess. Okay. Let me distinguish. There are some ideas where you like learn about it for one hour and you understand why it's never going to happen. There are some ideas like my Dropbox where, for hot dogs idea. <laughs> yeah. Or just something that like violates some fundamental law of physics or just you it's clear you just could never make money doing it. Um, maybe it's an idea that could be good, but the policy landscape just won't allow for it. Like nuclear power. I mean, not say I hope nuclear power succeeds brilliantly. I'm a big fan of it, but that's an example of an idea where your technology path could be incredibly well thought out and it still will just be hard because of policy constraints and that type, that style of idea was less attractive to Alphabet. I think others are working on that and I hope that they succeed because the world would be better off. But there's just, you yeah. know, there's some classes of ideas that you can understand fairly quickly. It's not a good fit for Alphabet, which is the same in when you're in that position as saying it's not a good idea. You're just saying it's not a good idea for us. So I, then there were a few. Like a perpetual motion machine. Yeah, there were. Yeah, some of them re resolved to a perpetual motion machine and then you're just like, okay, not a good idea overall. Um, but there are a few that that I did spend more time on. So like one example was a project we called Foghorn, which I think is still on the X website. I'm not sure. Just um, we ended up, I, I led that project for maybe a year, maybe a little bit more. We ended up concluding it wasn't a good idea, but it took a year. 
And the idea was a way of taking carbon dioxide out of seawater, combining it with renewable hydrogen and making carbon neutral that. fuels. Um, and, you know, that idea has actually like revived now that there's more interest in the space and the price of fossil fuels has gone up and there's potentially more policy support. Yeah, they call so- it Leghorn now. <laughs> you know, maybe it was actually a good idea, but That's like terrible. at the I'm time, so it wasn't yeah, the right is, idea yeah. for Alphabet. You know what I mean? Just took us a while to understand why. But then with Geo, what happened ultimately was that I felt from everything I was learning, it was an incredibly good idea. But it also became clear that even though the concept of making Geo more cost effective and just like simpler for normal homeowners to get. Maybe that was a really good idea, but it wasn't necessarily a great fit for Alphabet. And um, so my choice set was move on and find another idea that's a good idea and a good fit for Alphabet or because I wasn't willing to do that, um, just pursue it as a good idea that doesn't have to be a good fit for Alphabet. And I was lucky to get their support to do the latter. That's incredible. So they gave you their blessing. Yes, they did. And I'm so grateful for that. And I will say, like, when I tell the story, I'm aware it sounds so simple and so clear. <laughs> but living the story, it was not that experience. <laughs> um, it was. It was just, I think, first, very frustrating for me that an idea that felt like it was such a good idea wasn't a good fit for Alphabet. Like I wit, I wanted to will it to be a good fit. I, I felt like, I don't know, frustrated that um, the leadership wasn't seeing it as a good fit, even though in retrospect, I'm like, they were definitely right. <laughs> I think they were wise. And then the decision to leave and found the company was a very difficult decision because I had no idea how to do that at all. And the counter option of just like come up with another idea wasn't terrible, right? Like X is a pretty nice place to work. I liked my job. It was very comfortable for me. It was like way less likely to end in disaster, right? So, um, But yeah, ultimately, of course, what happened was I did make the decision to leave and did get X's support. And I feel like it was the right thing for me and for X. So it ended up working out. Yeah. I mean, you might have had more fun the other way because, you know, Alphabet can afford a lot of monkeys and a lot of typewriters. So you could have easily produced the works of Shakespeare if you had enough time over there. But I think you made the right choice. Uh, So how did you uh, (laughs) how did you. How did you land this job? Before we move on to your new project, how did you land this job being the only one who didn't have a PhD? Because that seems like a dream job to so many people. How did you end up there, do you think? Yes. Well, um, I had, so I had been in this rotational program at Alphabet and it was like an entry level marketing rotational program called the APMM program. Um, and managed to get a rotation at X. So I was a junior level marketer working at X overall. And I I wasn't particularly good at the job, to be honest with you. I was still like trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And um, 
it was hard. Like I I felt a lot of self-doubt because a lot of my peers were jealous of that rotational placement, right? Getting to work at X, it felt like it should be a dream job. Um, And then a lot of aspects of it were pretty fun. I got to travel. I got to work with really senior people and I just was like not enjoying it uh, and not doing very well at it. And that was discouraging. And I, I found myself like most excited about and gravitating towards this work of figuring out like what type of projects do I wish X was doing? Like what seems like it makes the most sense for us to go after, which wasn't really appropriate to my role or my level at all. And not my position to figure those things out. Um, But what happened was I was at a dinner party at um, Astro Teller's house. He is the, and continues to be the leader of X. And at that time, X was very small. So he could literally invite basically everyone to his house for dinner. Um, And the person who ran the rapid evaluation team, Rich Duvall, was talking about a paper he'd read a scientific paper about you know these researchers who had extracted co2 from seawater and he was so excited about that work and it was nearing the end of the year and at that time i don't know if this is still the case google's budgeting process worked so that like if your team had a leftover budget at the end of the year it would disappear so like the value of money went down at the end of the year because everyone was going to lose their budget. Um, And I knew this. And so I also knew Rich didn't really have time or capacity on his rapid evaluation team to actually pursue anything about this idea in the few months remaining in the year. But I had some time and I had some interest. So I said, look, Rich, give me some of your budget that you'll lose at the end of the year anyway. And I'll invite these re- this researcher who led this work to come and talk. And if there's something there, if there's an opportunity to work with him, maybe we can do something interesting. And he, of course, like said, okay. Cause I think, you know, first of all, I'll always be grateful to him for giving me that opportunity. But second of all, there's very limited downside to, for him. Cause you know, he was going to lose the money anyway. And why not see what happened? So We invited uh, Matt Eisenman, the scientist, to come and give a talk, and it went well, and Matt and I got along really well and ended up hiring him to to sort of like recreate this work and improve upon some aspects of it, and that went well, and it sort of led into this whole exploration of carbon-neutral fuels, and the project just went pretty well, Um, and I think just by doing it in that sort of unofficial capacity... I was able to secure a spot on the real team because I was just doing the work Whoa. of that team. That's how it happened. What a story. That's yeah. incredible. So, see, your resume, you know, belies that fact. I, mean, I wouldn't have known that because when I said, do you ever feel like you don't belong? I was being facetious. I was referring to myself <laughs> in this conversation. I feel like I don't belong right now. Like I'm not worthy. But I had no idea that that was a very real component of your actual life, that you did find your way into there. And I think what is even more shocking or potentially shocking to the viewer is so many people believe that when you land something like that, it's got to be the end. It's the dream job. It's got to be the end of the story. That is the happily ever after moment. But yet to get that and to say, you know what, I'm going to leave that and I'm going to go do my own thing. 
That takes courage. And you mentioned that it was a bit more difficult than it seems when you actually did it. So how much fear was there in starting your own project in geothermal heat and energy? Yeah. Was it a terrifying decision to do? It was. It was like the maximum level of fear I've ever experienced professionally. Yeah. Um, I remember it. Like I, I was I physically that. shaking that day when I <laughs> – it's kind of embarrassing. But I was. I was – so anxious about it. And I am lucky to be a person who naturally does not have a lot of anxiety in my life up until the point that I decided to start my own company, which started my relationship with anxiety, which now is a state of mind I know so well. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was, it was a really hard decision. I feel you there. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the idea itself. So what, broadly speaking, is the idea of your new startup, Relatively New? Yeah. Dandelion is a home geothermal heating and cooling startup. And what we do is we replace homeowners' furnaces and boilers, which are often fueled by natural gas, propane, or fuel oil. We can take them out entirely and install a geothermal heat pump, which is... um, an electrically powered device that harvests renewable thermal energy from the ground to heat the home and cool the home. So it's actually uh, not a new technology. It's been around for a long time, but no one in the U.S. has really figured out how to package it and sell it to just typical homeowners in such a way that makes it affordable and simple for them. And that's really the premise of Dandelion. We are making it less expensive for homeowners to heat with geothermal and cool with geothermal than using fossil fuels. Well, that's, you know, if I may, that's very easy to say. I mean, of course, in the Bay Area and the liberal leftist elite area, you can use things like geothermal energy to heat your home. But what about the people in the rest of America or the rest of the world who don't have access to geothermal energy? I'm glad you asked because that is a misconception about geothermal energy. So there's, it's confusing because the word geothermal is uh, overloaded. It's like it's used to describe electricity that you make from like hot underground Pacific Rim, you know, like magma. Magma. Essentially, that's not what we're doing. Um, Well, you know, we straight into a volcano. Right. Not not our type. So our type of geothermal just uses the ground anywhere. So actually Dandelion doesn't even serve the Bay Area. We are based on the East Coast and we serve the Northeast today. And you don't need any special geological features to do it. You can just like put a pipe, a simple plastic pipe down into your yard. And you're just using sort of the thermal inertia of the ground. The fact that like the ground is always the same temperature to, to heat and cool your home. So very different. Uh, I was being facetious. I'm sorry. If that didn't, I'm <laughs> well, it's something that a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> what if you <laughs> don't have access to the ground? Yeah. You know, that, we got to think about those people. But a, a side advantage of putting That's a pipe true. in the ground is you may discover house, oil. This would not be a good solution. Yeah. You no. made, you know, if I put a pipe in the ground, oil comes up, I'm rich. So what have I got to lose? Um, so this system can heat and cool your house, and it's much more That's efficient, great. much less carbon dioxide is used. Um, so 
you mentioned that it's been around for a long time. In fact, I, I used to live in Europe for many years, and I yeah. believe that it's more prevalent or has been it more is. prevalent in it new is. developments in the Netherlands and in Europe. Yeah. So why do you think this has been so hard to get adopted up until now? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's inherently difficult about the idea is it requires several different trades to work together that haven't really done that before. So like you need a driller to put in the ground loops, an HVAC installer to put in geothermal, and it has to be someone who actually understands geothermal. And then um, we found that it's very important also to offer financing because like basically all renewable energy, geothermal heat pumps are more expensive to put in upfront but then much less expensive to run over time. So if you're able to finance the systems, you can charge people nothing up front and they still save money immediately, like in solar, rooftop solar. But that financing hadn't really been offered. Um, so I think you just, I think it's a similar style of issue to what rooftop solar was facing a decade or two ago where you just had no rooftop solar really happening because roofers and electricians were just two separate trades and no one had really financed it and figured out how to package it in the right way. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, but a lot of what we're doing, I, I think, has some similarities to that, just like making it a more streamlined offering. So, um, yeah, but you're right. I think one proof point, like one reason, one of the things that was powerful to me when I was evaluating the idea was the fact that 20% of homes in Sweden rapidly. use this yeah. rapidly. Exactly. It's like, well, there, it's of very course. unlikely this couldn't be done. It's being done in Europe. So once it's installed, is the only input then electricity, which yeah. could come from say solar panels on your roof? Yep. Yep. And um, because the system is so efficient, you only need 20 to 25% of the total energy used for heating and cooling to come from electricity. 75 to 80% is coming just from the ground. It's renewable thermal energy. So it's just very cost effective and efficient because of that. Do you think that a good business strategy in general is just to look at what Sweden is doing now and just make a business in the United States? Just generally, I feel like they're always 50 years ahead of whatever we're doing in this country. It's always Sweden. You know, I have to say that has worked really well for me so far, that strategy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Like just, yeah. you, know, like, you know, maybe we should install some trains or free high-speed internet. Maybe the cities should be clean. Maybe the drinking water, maybe the lakes should all be potable. I These are some ideas be. that we could learn from Stockholm. Exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's it's like a paradise. They're they're so far <laughs> ahead. It's I love Sweden so much. It's such a great place to be. Um okay, so we've built this thing. Uh, how did you go taking that leap? to starting your own thing. How did you actually make that happen in the first six months, the first year? Did you save up some personal money and have a little bit of a runway and then start this thing? Um, how did you get the funding or turn it into a reality? Mm -hmm. Well, I, yeah. So I do, I do want to acknowledge that 
having worked at Google for the prior seven years and saved some money made it much easier for me to make the decision because it was less risky, of course. And that was a huge advantage that I had had. Um, But certainly my number one focus when I figured out I was actually going to do this was to try to figure out how fundraising worked because I um, only had the experience of raising money from internal budgets at X, which is, you know, quite a different process than um, raising money from venture capitalists. And I really had no idea how it worked. Like what, what even goes into a pitch? What do investors care about? How do they evaluate ideas? Like how I had no understanding of the common pitfalls. Like right now I have this landscape in my mind of here are attributes of a company that is investable. Here are warning signs that will make something seem less appealing to a typical VC. Like I had no idea of any of that. Um, I will say one big advantage that I had was that I was coming out of X. And so one thing that's hard for a lot of um, entrepreneurs, first-time founders, is even getting meetings with anyone. And that was not hard for me because people were curious about what was coming out of X. And so that was like an incredibly useful advantage. So I was able to get a lot of first meetings Certainly getting the second meeting was a a challenge. And I honestly learned just by pitching and having it go badly and like trying to understand why. And it kind of felt like banging my head against the wall because it's hard to be so bad at something that feels relatively Mm. personal, right? Because it's like when you're Mm -hmm. coming at an investor with a concept. That's that's what I'm doing. Yeah. (laughs) That's yeah. my life every day. It's hard to be so bad at something that feels sure. relatively personal. <laughs> it is. Yeah, exactly. No, it's like it's uh, it's emotionally very difficult, I think, to put yourself in that situation again and again. But like what a great way to learn something quickly. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's like essentially I just got rejected a lot of times and it's not straightforward to understand even why, because most investors aren't like, here is specifically what you said that made me convinced this wasn't going to work. Like you don't get that clarity. Sometimes you get more than others. People waste your time all the time. Like once I I had more than one meeting where the person just like no showed. And I had more than one meeting where uh, an investor group of investors would say, Oh, we were just curious about what X was doing. This is actually like, we actually uh, don't have yeah. any more room in the fund. Like just blatantly wasting. That's ugly. You know? Yeah, it felt very discouraging. It was like, um, but it only takes one person to say yes. And then that's usually enough, right? So I had, first I was able to get some followers um, and usually... And, but follow on investors. So people who said, hey, if you find someone to lead this round, I will put some money in. And that's mm. helpful because then you actually have some people who are on your side a little bit. Um, and it's a good signal. And I would say for both of those investors who who did that, they they knew somebody that I worked closely with at Google. 
And, and that was helpful because they were able to talk to people who knew me, who could vouch for me as a responsible person. Um, and so I think that that was critical. And then eventually um, ended up pitching to Collaborative Fund, which is a, a seed stage or early stage investor based in New York. And they decided they would give me a term sheet for leading the round. Um, and, and so we had funding. Cool. Yeah. What an awesome story. You know, when I think of something like Alphabet, you think of a, a company that has no concept of money at all. Money mm -hmm. must mean something very different. You know, if you were pitching a product, you say getting funding internally, you say, hey, I need $10 billion to do this. And then I can imagine somebody saying, hey, sorry, we don't have that budget. Okay, now we do. Yeah. <laughs> like how many billions of dollars per second <laughs> is an Alphabet earning? Like what does money even mean to an organization like that? I mean, they... They must I have know. more money than what hundreds of countries GDP combined, uh, right? And I then going out into the real world. That's so true. It's like the the limiting reagent at Alphabet is, isn't money. I mean, it's like they need to. It's just what you're solving for is so different, right? Like at a startup at Alphabet, on yeah. the other hand, um, brand and like legal risk. And a lot of those things are very important and very sensitive. Um, so just, I mean, just like an example of how that could relate to geothermal. It's not hard for Alphabet to finance doing a pilot, let's say. Like, let's say, okay, as one of the first things we did when we spun out and raised that money was we actually started selling and installing geothermal systems, right? Like, Go to market, understand how it works, learn as quickly as you can. And that pilot, I mean, the hard part about that for us as a startup was money. It's just like you have to be like very good at budgeting, right. which I had not gotten good yeah. at by that time to my acute detriment because you don't have that much money. And so if you're off, like that's a big problem for you potentially an existential problem. Whereas at, at Alphabet, which, you know, we were not at when we piloted, but if we had been, the money was trivial from their perspective, like the amount that we ended up needing, but dig, like drilling holes in homeowners' yards and putting heating and cooling systems in, that would be sensitive because, um, yeah, just because there's like risk, brand risk, reputational risk, legal risk, like a lot of those risks that as a startup are okay, would be much, much more sensitive at a big company with such, you know, global reach as Alphabet. So it's just like, yeah, the types of things you're solving for are totally different. And that was disorienting to me. I can completely understand that. But you're obviously no slouch. You have uh, fund raised over $130 million, if I'm not mistaken, for your concept so far, which is, to normal people who aren't working at Google, insane. Does that feel like a tremendous win for you? Or does it feel yeah. like you still have most of your work cut out for you? Both, I would say. Um, yeah, definitely both. Yeah. I think... First of all, let me just say that um, at this point in the company, the company has raised 130 million. Certainly, my role in that is 
you know, ever diminishing compared to the talented people that I found to join the company who are now doing so much more than I am, you know, to raise our latest fundraising rounds. And so I think one of the biggest achievements that I've had is just creating a company, going after a problem I care about and getting such talented people to want to do it. It's like attracting talented people to actually try to make your concept real. It's like you couldn't do anything more helpful to actually making it real. And so that's been really great. Probably one of the most rewarding parts of the experience. But I would say, um, even though I'm so happy with how far we've gotten in the past five and a half years, I think, yeah, we've, when you look at the size of the problem, um, just like the greenhouse gas emissions coming from homes and how much heating fuels are still used in this country, we've done almost nothing. You know, it's like both of those things are true. We've done so much. And yet compared to the total problem, it's basically rounds down to zero. Um, But, you know, that's like what you get when you try to go after such a big problem. Well, from the outside, the the journey has been very fast because if I remember correctly, you started with two people and within three years, you're the number one supplier of this type of system in the entire United States, right? That's true, though. The Yes. And the industry is quite small. But yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an interesting conundrum because that's one of the main reasons that I do this show and where my interest lies is that intersection between what we can do and the problems left to solve. And when we look at the scale of these problems, it's so daunting, it's so massive, it feels impossible to solve these issues. But yet we know that we can make a dent in the universe, to borrow a quote from Steve Jobs. Yeah. Do you feel somehow different knowing that you're making a dent in the universe, even if that currently rounds down to zero? I do. I do. I think um, it is. I used to feel, I don't know, a sense of a vague sense of unease about the fact that I wasn't sure the way I was spending my time day to day, at least in my career. Right. Like, did it matter? Would it actually make any difference to almost anyone? Like, it was very unclear to me. And probably the answer felt more like no than like yes, if I'm going to be honest. And now it's like the the great thing about working on a problem so big that it's almost impossible, right, for any one person or organization to even come close to solving it um, within a lifetime. It's just I know it matters, right? It's like this. I have no doubt that my work and my contribution is meaningful even though the scale of the problem is is so big. Uh, and I, I also think from a business perspective, it's great to be working on such a big problem because the upside is not capped, right? Like I, I actually, I think um, one of the things I learned at X actually is I'm not convinced that trying to solve a small problem is necessarily easier than trying to solve a hard problem. Like I think changing anything is typically quite hard. And at least if you're going after the big problem, it's easier to attract better resources, right? Like you couldn't, you couldn't get like as much money or or as talented people or as much like, I don't know, there's just, it's harder to, to get the momentum, I think, when you're not going after something big. And, and that, 
that just has made me convinced, like, why not just choose the big thing? There's no reason not to. Wise words. Well, you've given me one great idea. And that idea what is I'm going to rebrand the show. I'm going to call this show a vague sense of unease now. I think that more <laughs> accurately describes yeah. what we do here. <laughs> Just, you know, you'll feel somewhat bad, but you'll also feel somewhat good because that, I mean, that is basically the core premise of the show, exactly what you described. That is why we're here. That's what I'm most interested in. Because I can't shake the feeling that as big as these problems are, it's just more noble. It's better to try to solve them. It's better to have a crack at it and even potentially fail than to not try at all. Certainly, if you see the scale of these problems, I think the only thing that makes sense is to try and solve it. So I just hope that more people take your approach and try to tackle some of these big problems and realize that it's not just being a hippie and forsaking all material possessions that there's another path where you can actively try to solve these problems and you know raise money doing that and get other people to do it it's, so it's not like this aesthetic life or going pure capitalism i'm going to dump as much plastic into the ocean as humanly possible there is <laughs> a third way and i think that way is the one i'm most interested in yeah yeah, I definitely agree with that. And um, and I do think that failure, when people talk about failure, um, there's different qualities. Like failure can have different qualities. It's hard to use just one word, right? Like I, I do think that, um, let's say you're a scientist trying to understand if a certain method will potentially cure cancer just to try to, I don't know, random example, but like if you're a really good scientist and you design an experiment to test this method and it turns out you prove that the method does not help, well, you've still elucidated something about the nature of the problem that could be helpful, even though you failed to like cure cancer with that one experiment. And I kind of think that this work has some similarities where if you're um, taking a thoughtful approach where you're spending resources wisely and being strategic, even if it doesn't work, you've learned something and maybe like contributed some knowledge against the problem. It's not like there's no value in that, right? I think the the bad type of failure is when you people just, if, if you go about it in a totally unhelpful way, and so everyone's worse off, right? Of course, you don't want to do that in any aspect of your life. Yeah. And what you've already been able to achieve is not insignificant because I think something like 400,000 metric tons of CO2 have been offset from your efforts. People's home energy bills are reduced by 50%. Homes that implement your system, 80% less carbon emissions. So the reason for doing this is very clear. You mentioned that you're very passionate about this particular problem. Why are you most passionate about this? And I guess I'm just going to assume that we're talking about CO2 emissions in general, mm. perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's a good question. Like why, I mean, the climate, the climate issues that we face I think that they've drawn like that problem, which is such a big multifaceted problem. It's hard to even call it a single problem, but like it's um, drawn me in. I would say I really 
like um, science and it does feel like a problem particularly well-suited to somebody who really likes science and technology, though there is a huge policy component as well, of course. And it's just such a problem of our time. It's um, a problem that really like beca- pe- people's awareness and the, the conversation about it got dialed up as I was growing up, right? <laughs> um, I got to notice it pretty firsthand, I think as many of us have by now, but I grew up in New Hampshire and in New Hampshire, there really are four very distinct seasons where things happen and I could notice that the, the change, even, you know, it's like amazing, but even within my lifetime and I'm, you know, 36 now, I've, it's like, I could hey, notice too. the world changing. <laughs> What was what was that? I'm also yeah. 36, coincidentally oh. enough. Usually, I'm I'm talking to young hotshot kids. Usually, <laughs> you know, they change the world before they're 20 years old, and I say, "Good for Not you, awesome. very awesome." But, <laughs> no, well, I mean, you're much further along. Oh but, man, I'm one bag of Cheetos away from being destitute. Uh, but, but you know, what? I think a lot of problems um, are really interesting. Like. I do really care about this one, but I, I don't know. It just, it seems like th- so many of them are interrelated, right? It's geothermal heat pumps happens to be the way I feel like I personally saw a path to doing something useful, but I don't think it was destined to be that way. I think that's just what happened. And there are so many interesting problems. That's how I feel. And to take this on board, you had to become well acquainted with anxiety for the first time in your entire life. Do yes. you feel that that was worth it now, five and a half years in? I do. The I do feel like it was worth it, but it wasn't great. Like, just to be honest with you, um, mm. if, if you asked me, like, how much would, how much do I think I would have enjoyed on average my day-to-day life having chosen this path, like over the last five and a half years, having chosen this path versus staying at Alphabet. I don't know that I'm happier with like, on, I'm just being very honest, like on a day-to-day basis, like we're cutting ratio, it from the show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the no, ratio no, no. Yeah, right, joy to stress. I definitely have a lot more stress. I mean, I obviously, I mean, overall now, now that the company is a little bit further along and I have an amazing team around me and it is a lot less stressful for me than it was. And so the ratio is getting, it's in a good place at this point, but like those first few years were really hard. I don't regret them at all because it's like, there's a trade-off I think between like, not all the time, but in my particular case, I think there was a trade-off between ease and meaningfulness, right? Like it's like my job was very meaningful, very fulfilling, but like, extremely unpleasant (laughs) and I don't know I just it was like a yeah that's just the nature of how it was I don't know if it had to be like that I think if I ever start a company again I'll I'll be well better equipped to do it in a way that's like more mentally um healthy or like I don't know less less emotionally taxing maybe is a better way to put it but um I don't regret it but it wasn't great. That's what I'll say. That's my summary. 
That's yeah. good. Well, that ease and meaningfulness, two opposites, that might right there be the reason that more people don't attempt to tackle these giant problems. If Amazon has taught us anything, it's that the vast majority of humanity will choose ease every time. Why do something that takes me five more minutes when I can click one button and have something come? I mean, Amazon's entire business model is predicated on the idea that ease is the only thing the customer cares about. How can we make it faster, simpler, less effort? In fact, I don't even want to get up and go touch my computer to order that thing. I'll say, hey, Alexa, order me some more <laughs> beer. And then it'll show up automatically, right? So the, e the less friction, the better. Definitely. But what we're describing here is a willful choosing of taking friction, of taking difficult things onto one's shoulders. So what do you think is waiting for people who choose to make their life more anxiety-filled or more difficult with nobody telling them to do that but themselves? Yeah, it's a good question. And certainly I relate to the to the pull towards ease, right? Like I'm a... I'm a human. It makes sense to me. Like in most, I like Amazon and ordering things with, you know, prime as much as anyone. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, people choose job, like a lot of jobs are not easy already, even if they're not hard in exactly the way that starting a company is hard. But I have a lot of friends that have very hard jobs maybe in being a lawyer or consultant or just working long hours at a startup or, you know, any number of things. So I think it's just, um, I think maybe, I think maybe the risk or the stress of starting your own company is like uh, the fear of just like really embarrassing yourself, <laughs> you know, and on the theme of this, this podcast or this conversation, it's like, if you're on the beaten path, then it's hard. Like you're, you're not going to be judged for being unwise or like doing something just like obviously bad in retrospect. And I, I contended with this myself. It was like when I left, when I had this job at X, there was prestige associated with that. It was a job that my peers would have wanted. And I was aware of that. And like some part of my identity, I think my ego benefited from that, the status of that position. And so to give it up, it could have easily happened and honestly almost did so many times. Like I, I leave the com that comfort, both psychic comfort, but then also like the salary and everything of that position and just fail to raise money for like a, a heating and cooling startup that, you know, like, I don't know. That was not a, yeah. what were you like thinking? You idiot. <laughs> I had no you idea. You had it all. Right. Like, I, and I, I'm not an expert. Well, now I am, but like at that time, I wasn't an expert in home heating and cooling. I really had, I had this fear of like, I have no business doing this. I don't know how to start a business. I'm not an expert in home heating and cooling. Like I'm, it's probably honestly, logically, like probably it will go badly. And where will that leave me? Then I'll just be like unemployed. Um, I mean, 
in retrospect, I could just get another job and it actually wasn't as risky as it seemed at the time. But I think that's the reason if I had to diagnose it, because, um, yeah, you do, you do risk some of those more like societal or just others, others perception of you. I think it, I think that is put at risk a little bit when you try to do something where, you know, it might just go really badly for you. So when you felt that most acutely, was it the mission? What propelled you forward in those moments where I'm sure you felt, especially in the early days, that you had made a terrible mistake? <laughs> yeah, well, what the idea that propelled me forward and made me do it is that I, I knew almost on a like rational basis that was less emotional that I wanted to be the type of person that would leave an alphabet to pursue a dream that I had, given that I had done all this analysis and believed so strongly it was a good idea. It was like, this opportunity is exactly the type of opportunity that I want to be the type of person who would, who would pursue. Like, I just want, I knew I wanted to be that person, even if I emotionally felt terrified to do it. And it was just that, that I realized like, if I don't do it, I'll just feel regret. I just knew I would feel regret. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, a similar thing happened actually um, in 2020 when I made a similar, in my perspective, a similar decision. Um, so from 2017 to 2020, I was the CEO of Dandelion, but I had realized um that I didn't want to be like the experience of being the CEO in those first few years. I, for a lot of reasons, I just like became aware that I would prefer to hire a CEO and take on uh, more of a leader of product in R and D style role. Cause that's just what I like more. But I had all this fear about like what that would mean. First of all, like just CEO is such a prestigious role and, I was worried people would make assumptions if I brought in a CEO that I would had been like forced to do that. And they would, I don't know. I was just, I was like really self-conscious about it. And I didn't have a lot of models to look at who had done that. Um, but I like was pretty sure internally it's what I wanted to do. Mm. And so I just did it. <laughs> like, nice. um, yeah. And now I'm, I'm not the CEO. I brought in Michael in 2020, Michael Saxe, and it's made my life so much better. And I think it's made the company better and everyone's better off. It's, it was a, it's been a great opportunity for Michael. Like, it's just, I'm so glad I did it, but it was hard to do. Well, what yeah. you said is so profound, and it reminds me of one of my favorite TED Talks of all time. Maybe you've seen this, or maybe it's just a coincidence. I think her name is Ruth Chang. I could be wrong about that, but it's a TED Talk that came out many years ago about how to make a really hard choice. Hmm. And her central it. premise, everybody should look it up. Oh, it's worth, I think you should watch it right after the, as soon as you can, because it's about how you make, it's 10 minutes, it can't be very long, but it's, the point is that hard choices are hard because there is no obvious right answer. Otherwise, right. it wouldn't be hard. If there was an obvious right. answer, it would be an easy choice. 
So that means that per definition, both of the potential choices are roughly equivalent in some fundamental way. So you're not going yeah. to solve that problem by asking which is the better choice or which is the one that I should do. But she argues which of these choices will better define the type of person that I want to be and mm. what type of person would make which choice. That's exactly what you said. And I find that so fast because you said, you know, staying at Alphabet was surely not the wrong choice. It was no. just a different choice. But that no. wouldn't define you as you see yourself or better yet, as you see that you could be. I think that's mm -hmm. awesome. I really love that. Cool I, I haven't seen it, but it really, yeah, that lands with me. And I think... I think it is a great framework because it's like I wanted I want to be the type of person that constructs the life that I want that I want like and I think all of us as humans are so influenced by others around us right it's inescapable I am as much as anyone is but that it's like not even being aware of those forces I think it can lead people to make choices that are too defined by others and um, for no real good reason. It's just in our nature to care so much about what others, our relationships with others and what others might think of us, right? It's just a part of being human, but at least being aware of those forces gives you the freedom to decide how much weight you want to put there. Um, and yeah, thinking about what type of person do I want to become, I think it internalizes it a little bit more and helps. Because um, I think most people, if you ask it like that, they don't necessarily want to be the type of person that makes decisions based on others' opinions, even though we all are, I believe, fundamentally, unfortunately, Constantly. just like given yeah. we're human. I, me too. Yeah. yeah. We can't escape it. We can be aware of it, but we cannot escape that ego is yeah. a powerful, powerful thing. <laughs> What will they think of me, even if they're not thinking of me at all? That's also exactly, a problem, which they right? Certainly aren't. Them, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. That's the that's the real yeah. truth. They don't yeah. even, you're like they're looking at my career. No, they're not. <laughs> they're really not. But <laughs> no. it feels that way, and yeah. you can't take away the legitimacy of how it feels because it's it's a very real thing. Definitely. Well, we've approached the end of our hour. It has been a truly enjoyable conversation from my point of view. And like I said at the outset of this, I am just so thoroughly impressed with all of what you've done. I, I'm very, very impressed to learn that you made that tough choice and came out on the other side. That's just so noble and so cool. And you certainly have my deep admiration for, oh, for doing that. And I'm very grateful that it. you that you did choose to, to beat the off and bath, to borrow my own metaphor, uh, that you chose to make that hard decision and pursue something of meaning for you, even having, you know, arguably one of the nicest jobs that may be available on this entire planet. I mean, there's only so many truly great jobs. Maybe John Lasseter, maybe somebody at uh, Pixar, although wait, he's out of fame. Never mind, I can't say. Somebody at Pixar probably has a great job. Yes. You know, designing movies and whatnot. But there's only so many truly amazing jobs out there in the world. And to leave such a job, because there's something even greater inside you, I think, is one of the coolest, most noble things that I can possibly conceive of. So, you know, great job. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> um, well, thank and, you. And uh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for joining me. Is there anything you'd like to say as parting words before we wrap this thing up? Or promote um, your company? I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Just two 36-year-olds talking about Just the beaten path and leaving life it. and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you for having me. I really have enjoyed it. 
It is my pleasure. All right, everybody, check out the website. And if you own a home, look into geothermal energy. It is time. Uh, it's, a, it's a product whose time has come. And if you can do it and install it, it's worth it. The idea of having a truly self-sustained home, solar power, heated, cooled from the energy of the earth, getting rid of your dependency on fossil fuels and oil and natural gas. These are all things that couldn't be more relevant right now. So it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. <laughs>